And what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Guest Friday on Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. You can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow our socials on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, So today we're doing things a little differently on Guest Friday. Usually we have a guest to talk to, but today we are uh, fielding mailbag questions uh, for this entire episode. So uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, You guys are great. Sent in a lot of great questions. We'll get to as many of them as I can. Uh, So, you know, who knows, this might be a little long, but we're going to try to get to everyone, everyone's questions. So thank you everyone for submitting on Instagram and on Twitter and, uh, you know, texting me as well. Really appreciate um, all the questions. So Uh, Before we get going, I just wanted to address um, a social media post that uh, has been circulating around today on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, My podcast and my name is, you know, out in the out on the Boston Globe. And uh, it's kind of been um, a wild morning. You know, I did not expect to see that. Um, And I just think it's. I just. (laughs) kind of don't know what to say because I think, you know, really what I do, I really enjoy what I do, but I think that, you know, none of, none of that would be possible without, without listeners. And, you know, you guys are what make this podcast, you know, so special, you know, the people that, that listen to it, you guys enjoy it, you know, and, you know, it's kind of, I kind of don't know what to say, but thank you, you know, thank you for, for everyone that's, that's stuck with me for this long. And, you know, as I said on Instagram, you know, this is not, this is not, you know, this is not a finished product. You know, this is only the beginning. This is not, you know, something that I'm going to rest my laurels on. Like we still have a lot of, a lot, a lot of ways to go and a lot of, you know, work to do, so to speak. But I just think, it's, it's great to get some recognition, but I think at the same time, I don't want to be satisfied. I don't want to sit here and say, oh, you know, I got into the Boston Globe. There's no reason to keep doing this. You know, I think it's something that's, that's great, but, um, you know, I want to keep bringing you guys, you know, great content with this podcast. So um, just want to say thank you to the listeners and um, for, you know, continuing to make this podcast um, something that a lot of you guys enjoy. So uh, thanks for that. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to get to some of these mailbag questions. Uh, The Celtics were a popular topic among the questions that I got this week. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to go cover um, a bunch of Celtics questions, um, and then we'll kind of just go from there. So my first question that I got uh, was from Derek Welch. And so Derek wants to know, uh, how far do you think the Celtics can truly go? And then what is the expectation on top of that? So kind of a two-part question here. So um, Derek, it's, it's interesting because I think that this Celtics group is a team that can play in a multitude of different types of games. They're a team that can score a lot of points. They're a team that can really play hard defensively. You know, they can play almost any type of style. Um, and I think, you know, trying to assess where they can truly go is is hard because I think they have the potential to be an NBA Finals team. 
Um, I really think that they do. You know, I think that if all goes well, goes as well as it can, you know, if it continues, if their level of play continues the same way that it's been continuing over the last few months, I don't think there's any reason to believe that they couldn't make it to the NBA Finals. Um, And so I think, honestly, how far can they go? I think they can go to the NBA Finals. I think they could win a championship. You know, I don't think that that's out of the question. Um, And then, you know, second part of the question, what's the expectation? Now, that's also difficult because, you know, coming into the season, I think people had expectations that, okay, they're going to be pretty good. They'll probably be a playoff team. They get off to a bad start. They're three games under 500 uh, before the Suns game. And people are like, okay, they'll be lucky to be in the playoffs. And so I think the expectations for this group have changed a couple times this season. And I think when you look at what their record's been, 32-9, and nine, I believe, since that 18-21 and 21 start. 32-9, and nine, that's 41 games. That's half an NBA season. You know, and that extrapolates out to 64 wins in an 82-game schedule, which is ridiculous. That's one of the best regular seasons in NBA history. So are the Celtics as good as like a 60-win team? You know, maybe not. But I think when you look at, when you think about expectations, I think that this is a team that the expectations should be that they can get to at least the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I think that a fair expectation is second round or conference finals. I think that that's reasonable. I think, sure, they've been playing out of their minds, but I think that it's hard to kind of put finals expectations on this group because you have seen this group have issues when they're faced against teams that play really hard defensively, but the Celtics also play really hard defensively. So I think there's a possibility that they could be a favored team in pretty much any series that they play unless it's against the Miami Heat. Um, so I think in terms of expectation, I think if they go out in the second round, to me, that's not really a disappointment. You know, if they go out to a team like Milwaukee, maybe it's not that bad, you know, going out to a team like Philly would really be frustrating. You know, I think just because when you think about the, the rivalry that these two teams have, but, you know, I think if they go out in the second round, some people would be disappointed, um, I think a reasonable expectation for this team is, you know, a second round series, maybe you lose in a game seven or something like that. Um, But I think it's reasonable to expect that they can make the conference finals. Um, So that, at least in my opinion, is the expectation. And it should be, you know, if you're finishing in the top two of the Eastern Conference, that should be your expectation minimum that you get to the conference finals. But I don't think that if they losing the second round, you should label this season as a disappointment because honestly, I think that this team has performed way above expectations when you think about even at the beginning of the year when the expectations were a little bit better than they were at like the mid-season point or whatever that point was when they were 18 and 21. So, you know, it's, it's difficult because I think expectations have changed multiple times. But Derek, to give you a final answer... Um, I think that the Eastern Conference Finals, you know, should be the expectation uh, for this group. So I got kind of a similar question from uh, Tyler Hayden, my brother, who has been on Guest Friday in the past. Um, And so his question is, what do you think the ceiling and the floor is for the Celtics in the postseason? So, you know, kind of going on to what I said to Derek's question, you know, I think 
they can go to the NBA Finals. I think they could win a championship, you know, if they played against the Phoenix Suns or Golden State Warriors. That would be very difficult, but they somehow get to the Finals and it's, you know, Dallas or, you know, Memphis or something like that. I think they could win. Um, In terms of the ceiling and, you know, the absolute best that happens is the Celtics get Robert Williams in the second round and by the end of the series, he's back to full strength. And the Celtics get to the NBA Finals and win a championship. I think that is the ceiling for this team. That's if everything goes the best way it possibly can. The floor for this team, I think, worst case scenario is maybe they go out in the second round. You know, I think, you know, I, I just, I don't know if it's, I mean, I think worst case scenario, they lose in the first round to the Nets, but I just have a hard time believing that that's going to happen. But, you know, if you do want to answer what's the floor, you know, that's probably what it is. You know, losing in the first round to a Nets team, you know, which would be, I think, very disappointing uh, for this team. But, you know, if you want to set a floor, that's probably what it is. Um, So I think, you know, yeah, ceiling is, is NBA championship. I think floor is, you know, a first round exit, you know, in a seventh game or something like that. Um, But I don't think that that's going to happen. I think if the Celtics do draw the Nets, they probably should beat them in a first round series. You know, you know what the Nets can do with their firepower, but I think they don't defend at a high level. The Celtics really do. And I think it's going to be even more pronounced in the playoffs. The Nets don't really have kind of a third player like they had with James Harden. They don't really have a third player that you have to focus on. You know, it's really just KD and Kyrie. And, you know, KD is going to do what he's going to do. There's not really much you can do to defend him. You know, you try to make things difficult, but he's going to get his. He's going to score for your 50 probably every night. But it depends on how you can stop the rest of the lineup and the rest of their lineup. They don't defend. So, but I think, yeah, that's worst case scenario. Uh, losing in the first round, which I don't anticipate is going to happen, but I guess it's possible. Um, continuing with the Celtics theme, I got a couple of Celtics questions from uh, Carter Hayden, my younger brother. So Carter's question is, realistically, how long until Robert Williams is a defensive player of the year? So obviously Robert Williams, I think, has been in the conversation for the majority of the last couple of months of the season um, in terms of what he's done defensively. Um, he's just been a tremendous defensive player. You know, you look at his numbers have gone up significantly. You know, when you look at blocks and you look at rebounds, you know, you look at the minutes that he's playing, he's playing a lot more than he's ever played. And honestly, I think he's playing at such a level that I think if he did not get hurt and was continuing to play at this high level, he probably would have a good chance to win it this year. I don't think that that's possible, but I think realistically he could win Defensive Player of the Year within the next couple of years. You know, I don't know if next year is is out of the question. You know, it seems like Marcus Smart might be the odds-on favorite to win it this year, but I think Rob absolutely could be a favorite to win it in the next couple of years. Um, you know, could he win as early as next year? Possibly. You know, I think he's making all defensive per first team. I mean, I think he should. 
think it'll be kind of a joke if he doesn't, but I think that he's made your lineup so much more so much more able to defend at a high clip because he gives you someone that can block shots at the rim, you know, someone who can switch and kind of go out in the perimeter. Um, I honestly don't really like it when he does that, but I think he's so athletic that he can make up for it when guys drive to the basket. So realistically, Carter, I could see him winning defensive player of the year next year or the year after. Um, I don't think it's out of the question. Um, And then Carter also had another question about um, how long until Jason Tatum is an MVP. And, you know, not to kind of go off of what I just said with Robert Williams, but I think Jason Tatum could finish top five in MVP voting this year. Um, I don't think he's going to win this year. You know, I think that you look at Embiid, you look at Jokic. I mean, I think those two guys are kind of the favorites. But you look at what Tatum's done on the whole this season, it's been pretty impressive. Certainly, three-point shooting has been a bit down. The field goal percentage has been a bit down. But I think you look at what he's been able to do as an all-around player, not just a scorer not just a rebounder, not just a guy who's a who's a guy who can make plays for other guys, but he's also an outstanding defensive player too. A lot of people don't know that about him. So I think he's one of those guys that plays at a real good, you know, plays at a really good all-around level, you know, similar to someone like Kawhi Leonard who, you know, can get his in terms of his, you know, pull-up jump shots, his three-point shooting, his drives to the basket but also his ability to defend defend at a high level. So, you know, I think, honestly, it could be within the next three years that Jason Tatum wins an MVP. Um, I think it might be a little crazy to predict that he'll he'll win it this year, but you look at the way that he has played, you look at the way that he's elevated his team with the way that he has played, with the way that he's able to make plays for other guys, you know, rebound the basketball, score the basketball, and... When his you know jump shot's not going down, he finds other ways to stay involved. Last night was a perfect example in the Celtics win that he did not shoot particularly well. I think that he's in a bit of a long uh, a shooting slump from downtown, but he was able to get ten rebounds, was able to have eight assists. So I think the the way that he can do multiple things and do multiple things at an elite level leads you to believe that he absolutely could be someone that could win an MVP within the next three years. If it's next year, if it's the year after, if it's the year after that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're really just kind of scratching the surface with the type of player um, that he'll probably become in the next five years. So yeah, I think he could win MVP fairly soon. Um, so I think, I think that's it for the Celtics questions. Um, got a bunch of football questions, um, but I think we're going to go to hockey first. A couple hockey questions from uh, Sean Montgomery, who's a friend of the pod. He's been on the pod before. Um, so Sean has a couple of questions. One's kind of a two-part question. Um, and so his question is, what do you think the Bruins should do with DeBrusque? Is he too far gone to keep, or should they shop him when his market market value is the highest? Um, so obviously, um, is a great question. You know, I think that there are multiple different schools of thought with how to deal uh, with Jake DeBrusque, who's playing. I've not seen him play like this in a couple of years. 
uh, the way that he's playing. It's pretty spectacular. He's been able to, I think, have goals in five straight games. He has 21 goals on the season, most goals that he's scored since 1819, which was his second year in the league when he had 27 goals. Um, so not outside the posits. Not crazy that he could match the 27 goals with 12 games to go in the regular season, um, I think considering how, how well he's played with Bergeron and Marchand. So I think I'm still of the belief that they should trade him. I think just because of the trade request, which is still you know active according to his agent, and I think if Jake still wants to be traded, the Bruins should honor that and I think find the best spot for him. I think that it made sense to give him a new contract to be like, okay, we'll give him a deal. It's a reasonable deal, $4 million. It's not anything crazy. You know, a team should be willing to bring him on. Um, and I understand how well he's played. And he's, you know, been unbelievable recently. And I think there's no reason to expect that he'll slow down in the playoffs. Um, but I just think at the end of the day, if a player and his agent have said, we want to be traded, you kind of have to honor that. And I think... I don't know. I don't really know if it's fair to Jake DeBrusque for the Bruins to keep him, you know, unless he comes out and says, hey, I don't want to be traded anymore, um, which, you know, we don't know if that's his standpoint. If that changes, you know, and he does want to stay here, then by all means, you should keep him. But I think if the if the word is still that he wants to be traded, you kind of need to trade him. So I think that, you know, depending on how well he does in the playoffs, the Bruins might be able to get a pretty decent haul. You know, and I think you also think about some other pieces that the Bruins could, you know, put in a package if they want to ship him to, you know, Vancouver or Edmonton, you know, one of those Western Canada places. You know, the Bruins have been interested in Connor Garland, who's uh, right wing for the Canucks. So I could see, you know, the Bruins flipping DeBrusque for Garland and maybe adding in a couple more pieces it's probably going to take a lot more than that to get JT Miller if that's, you know, what the Bruins are thinking. But I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, if the player and the agent still want to be traded, then you have to honor that. And that's just kind of my opinion. Some people might disagree, but I think unless Jake DeBrus comes out and says, I don't want to be traded anymore, I think that he should be traded. So that's kind of just how I feel. Um, but it's, it's awesome to see how well he's played recently. Um, so Sean's second question, are the Leafs getting over the hump this playoffs? So obviously that's a, uh, it's a, it's a pretty loaded question because, you know, the Maple Leafs, they have not made it out of the playoff or have not made it out of the first round um, since 2004. You know, they've been one of the best teams in the league this year at scoring. Um, I believe that they are second in the league in goals for, second in the league in goals per game at 3.8 per game, which is, you know, ridiculous. I mean, I think in my opinion, any team that's over 3.5 is pretty remarkable. Um, so, you know, second in the league in goals scored, second in the league in goals per game. Um, obviously have the top power play unit in the NHL at 30%, which is three percentage points above the next highest team, uh, which is the Rangers. You know, obviously, we all know what they can do offensively. And I think from an offensive perspective, they're one of the best teams in the league. And I think they can go up against some of the best offenses in the league. But 
I think that, you know, that type of, the type of offense or the type of way that they play is just, I don't know if it's very conducive to winning in the postseason. Now, I think it really depends, Sean, on the team that they draw. If they draw a team like Tampa Bay, if they draw a team like the Bruins, I'm not sure if I feel good about them winning in the first round this time. And I think, you know, if they somehow draw into the Atlanta or the Metro playoffs, uh, the Maple Leafs currently right now are in second place in the, in the uh, Atlantic. So it is possible if they fall into one of the wild card spots, you know, that they play a team from the Metro. Now I think they would be better equipped to playing a team from the Metro, say Pittsburgh. I don't trust Pittsburgh's goaltending, and I think, you know, Toronto could be an issue for, for, for Pittsburgh. But I think if Toronto runs into the Bruins again, if they run into Tampa Bay, I don't have a good feeling that they're going to be able to, you know, score five, six goals a game because you can't do that in the playoffs. It just doesn't it just doesn't work like that. You have to be able to win games two to one and three to two. And it's just like you kind of they're one of those teams that you kind of have to see them do it before you, you know, have put any type of stock into them. And so that's why it's hard for me to say that, yes, you know, this year is going to be the year because they failed so many other times. But I think as a Bruins fan, you know, if the Bruins play them again, they are kind of tempting fate. The Bruins have beaten them three times in the last, have beaten them the last three times they played in the playoffs. And I'll be honest, I think just from a superstitious perspective, you know, I don't really want to play them again and try to chance that where, you know, if they beat you, you know, it's probably going to be pretty ugly. But I think, you know, it just goes back to it's hard for me to choose. Or it's, it's hard for me to say that, yes, they'll get out of the first round because I just kind of have no confidence in the the defense that they play and the goaltending that they have. There's some big questions back there, sure. You have Austin Matthews, a guy who might be the MVP this year. You have, you know, Tavares and Marner and Nylander. You have so many guys who can beat you, but, you know, they're going to need to learn to play low-scoring games, and you have to do that to win, have to win in the playoffs. So I think, you know, if you really want to get an answer, you know, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think that they're getting out of getting out of the first round this year. Um, and I think you saw a pretty clear example when they played Florida the other night, you know, a 5-1 lead in the second period. They lose 7-6 in overtime. You know, it's just like not only do they not play great defense, they also have a penchant for giving up leads. And I think it's pretty bad to the point that I think it's gotten in some guys' heads that they kind of get a big lead and then they kind of stop playing. You know, you saw an element of that when they played the Bruins, you know, last week at the Garden. You know, building a 6-1 lead, the Bruins come back to make it 6-4. I mean, the game was never close, but, you know, they're, 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 they're not a team that I think a lot of people can trust based on that. So, no, Sean, I would say no. I don't think that they're uh, getting out of the first round this year, but... Who knows? You know, I could be wrong, and I probably am going to be wrong. But then again, it's, you know, how do you have confidence in a team that continues to, you know, find ways to lose in the first round? And 
it kind of just seems like it's the same story with this team that you know they build their team the same way to score five six goals a game and it's like you can't do that in the playoffs and i just think like at what point is the front office of that team going to learn that building your team that way does not work and it's kind of proven that it doesn't work so you know i don't know i wouldn't i would kind of not like not i would hate to be a leafs fan right now i just tell you that um so i think we've gotten a couple of red Sox questions so we will kind of gear or shift gears toward that um, and take a look at the red Sox. so kind of bouncing around there are some people that asked multiple questions so i just want to make sure i got everyone's questions answered um so the first red Sox question came from tosh campbell um, and so tosh's question is uh, trevor story is coming off a down year and historically players leaving colorado have not done very well how do you see him performing this year so you know uh, first of all tosh it's a great question um you know evan evan greasing and i kind of talked about this a little bit on uh guest friday last week about how we expect him to perform so i think just kind of the short answer for me um i'm not super worried about it because i think you're going from a place like Coors Field, which obviously is, you know, a hitter's park. We kind of all know that with the with the thin air and how well, you know, guys perform offensively, kind of to the point of guys' numbers being, you know, super ballooned and being like, okay, guys can put up amazing numbers, but maybe there are some guys that leave Colorado and don't necessarily do the best Um but I think going from Coors Field to Fenway, you know, Fenway, I think, is one of the most hitter-friendly parks in baseball. And I also think the AL East is also very hitter-friendly as well. So I think that kind of bodes itself well. Um, but Tosh is right. You know, Trevor Story did not have a very good year last year. You know, 251, the batting average he had in 142 games was the lowest batting average he's had since his second year in the second year in the league when he hit 239 and struck out 191 times which actually I think led baseball um, and so I think you know 24 homers 75 RBIs last year that's not bad you know I think that those numbers are pretty good but I think you know the the year that he had was pretty down you know and I think Obviously, there are some concerns, and I think there are legitimate concerns. But I think him coming to Fenway, him coming, him coming to the AL East, it might actually be, it might actually be a positive thing for him, um, and it might give him the ability to kind of have some confidence. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how he does out of the gate, you know. And I think that is probably what is going to help me kind of establish, okay, what kind of year is it going to be for him. Um, but I think you can expect that his numbers are going to be a little bit better. I think his batting average is going to be higher. You know, I think it's going to be closer to the 272 average, which is kind of his career average. Um, but he's hit above that, you know, the three years prior, prior to 2021. So I think, you know, you could say that, okay, maybe last year is an outlier because he did hit 289 in the shortened season in 2020 hit 294 in 2019 and 291 in 2018 18 and 19 he made the all-star team both seasons so 
you know, not saying that you're going to see, you know, all-star MVP level performance, but I think he's going to have a better year this year. And I think the other part of Tasha's question that I think was interesting and kind of made me look into it a little bit more is taking a look at players and how they've done after leaving Colorado. And there are a couple of examples that I think made sense to look at. You know, Nolan Arenado is kind of the most, the easiest kind of modern example to look at that he spent the first eight years of his career in Colorado, played last year in St. Louis, made the all-star team, you know, hit 255, 34 home runs, 105 RBIs. So, you know, he's a guy who I think did well coming out of Colorado, you know, but again, it's only one season, so we'll kind of probably will wait and see the next few years to see how he does. But I think, you know, he's a tremendous offensive player, and I think no matter where he's playing, you know, he's going to be elite. Um, another player, uh, Larry Walker, who I think was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame um, within the last few years, played 10 years of his career in Colorado um, and then played the final 144 games of his career um, in St. Louis and, you know, seemed to hit pretty well, 286, 26 homers and 79 RBIs um, in parts of two seasons. So I think, you know, he's a player who uh, was obviously a fantastic all-time player, did win an MVP in Colorado, um, but I think even at his old age, he still was able to perform pretty well. Um, Troy Tulowitzki was another example that I kind of looked at but after leaving Colorado, he had a couple of injury-riddled years, so it was kind of hard to assess whether, you know, he was really healthy in the years that he played um, in Toronto. Uh, the best example that I could find of a player that did really well after playing in Colorado uh, was Matt Holliday, who played the first six years of his career in Colorado, was traded to Oakland in 2009, and then played eight years with St. Louis, and then a year with the Yankees before returning to Colorado in 2018. So you take a look at his numbers in Colorado, you know, hit 319, 130 home runs, 486 RBIs. Obviously, he played more years in St. Louis, but still hit 293, you know, and then the half year that he played in Oakland after the trade, 286. So I think he was someone who I think you know, played the majority of his career in the National League, but I think even after being traded, he still had some really good years. He made three all-star teams, um, or excuse me, he made four all-star teams, um, and then was, you know, top 15 in MVP voting three times. So, you know, I think he's a player that did very well after uh, Colorado. So I think I'm curious to see what Trevor Story can do, but I think I'm confident that you know, last year is kind of going to be the the aberration, if you will. Um, and then I had two other Red Sox questions, one from uh, Jack Drew. So his question is, uh, what's your Red Sox season prediction? And if no, Chris Sale changes that. So obviously, I think Chris Sale's going to be missing a good chunk of the first half of the season. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't come back until you know, maybe close to the all-star break. I think June is kind of the set date that they're looking at uh, for when he could return. So I think uh, Jack, it's a great question because I think, you know, and Evan and I talked about this, that I think 
it's it's reasonable to expect that this team can have a season similar to how they did last year, you know, and I think that obviously there are a lot of things that went right for this team. You know, the pitching staff kind of held up, um, and it's interesting. You know, they did perform pretty well the majority of the year before Chris Sale came back in August. So I think, you know, they can pick up where, where they left off. You know, Ivaldi, you know, as I said last Friday, I think I have a lot of confidence in him um, and what the rotation can do. It's kind of, you know, I kind of don't know what you're going to get after him and Pavetta, but I think if the lineup can perform the way that we expect, I think that they should be fine. You know, closing pitch, the, the bullpen is something I'm also a little concerned about. So um, I think, I don't think that not having Chris Sale for the first half of the year really changes a lot of expectations for me for this team. Um, because I think once he comes back, he kind of can re-solidify that, that rotation, assuming that he's healthy. Um, but I think when you look at what they can do offensively, I don't think there's any reason to believe that they won't you know, be in contention. And I don't really know if not having Chris Sale is really going to change anything, um, or at least that's what I hope. And I think that's what a lot of us hope, that you know, the back end of that rotation can you know, get guys out, you know, keep the walks down, keep the, the home runs down. But, you know, obviously we'll see. But I think I have confidence in Ivaldi, I have confidence in Pavetta. They both were really excellent at times last year. So, you know, I still think that my season prediction of, you know, 93 wins is, is still pretty good. You know, I think 90 wins last year may have been, you know, the best possible thing that they could do. But I think that they could get around that or a little bit over that. You know, I think 93 wins, give or take four or five games, you know, I think is, is, is reasonable. So then I have had another um, kind of interesting Red, Red Sox question from uh, my mother, um, and she wanted to know um, who are some Woo Sox players to keep your eye on um, that could possibly help the Red Sox this year. So... Uh, great question, first of all. Um, and I think there are three players that I think are worth paying attention to um, as to guys who will play probably the majority of the season in Worcester but may you know, earn a call-up or two. Um, so I think the first guy is Connor Wong. Um, he was a catcher that the Red Sox acquired in the Mookie Betts trade. Actually, two of these guys that I'm going to look at are guys that were acquired in the Mookie Betts trade. So... Uh, Connor Wong, catcher, pretty athletic. Uh, the Red Sox, or excuse me, the Dodgers drafted him in the third round in 2017. He appeared in 50 games for Worcester last season, hitting 256, eight home runs, 26 RBIs, um, and then actually appeared in six games with the Red Sox last season, had three hits in 13 at-bats, hit 308. So, He's someone who I think can help, you know, I think especially if there are injuries, you know, he's someone who is athletic enough that can play other positions um, but can catch and I think gives them the ability to have someone who can kind of be an offensive guy. You know, if Vasquez gets hurt, if, you know, Ploiecki has an injury, I think he's a guy definitely you should keep your eye on in Worcester and, you know, if the Red Sox, if he does make an appearance. Um, another guy, which is kind of, I think might be obvious to some people, uh, Jaron Duran, the uh, outfielder. 
my seventh round pick of the Red Sox in 2018, made the or made 60 starts in Worcester last year, hit 258, 16 homers, 36 RBIs, was, in my opinion, I think was Worcester's best player last year. So he's a guy who also made some appearances in Boston, hit uh, 215 in 33 games for the Sox last year, 23 hits in 107 at-bats. So I think he's someone that could help the outfield. You know, if there's an injury, if Jackie Bradley, you know, really struggles hitting the ball, you know, I think he's someone that is athletic enough to be really solid in the outfield, you know, in right or in center. Um, so I think he's definitely worth paying attention to. Um, and then the last player, uh, Jeter Downs, who was also a part of the Mookie Betts trade was a first-round pick of the Reds in 2017. Uh, he is shortstop, second base, kind of a middle infielder, played 99 games with Worcester last year. Uh, did not hit very well, but did have 14 homers, 39 RBIs, um, hit only 191. So I think, you know, last year really was his first year of AAA baseball. So, you know, I think you could cut him a little bit of slack for the lack of offensive production, but I think this is going to be a big year for him. And I think, you know, it could lead the Red Sox to make, to making some big decisions. You know, if he does light it up and does, you know, improve offensively. Um, but I think he's a guy that probably needs another year in Worcester before we kind of make a, before we make kind of a procl uh, uh, like a grand proclamation of who he is as a player. Um, but I think he could still help. So I think those are three guys um, if you go to any Woo Sox games this year, definitely keep your eye on those three. So to finish off, we got a bunch of football, a bunch of football questions here. So um, we're going to circle back. Uh, Jack Drew asked that Red Sox question, and then he also asked a Patriots question. And his question is, is Devontae Parker the guy for Mac Jones? So... Obviously, we talked about the trade last week, or earlier this week, I should say. Um, and I think labeling him as the guy, you know, is not something that I'm super wild about. But I think, you know, he is a guy that is going to help their offense. I think just just to, to give you a, an easy answer, Jack, I think, you know, he's a guy who's a, who has a skill set that is a little bit similar to Nikhil Harry, that he's a guy that can you know, go up and win jump balls, but he also has really good speed and he's a pretty seasoned player. You know, yes, we have the injury history. He has the injury history. He only played uh, 10 games last year, but he is a guy that had a thousand yards in 2019 with the Dolphins and majority of those games were with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And, you know, he's not quite been the same player with Tua. You know, I think he's had his good games in the past, um, but I think he is a player that I think can give you the type of ability that, you know, some of the other big-time receivers can, but he just is not as big of a name as an Odell Beckham or an Allen Robinson or, you know, Devontae Parker or Devontae Adams. But I think he fits this offense in a way that he may not be the sexiest name, but I think he can fit into this offense really, really well. And I think... I don't think that Mac Jones is going to have, you know, the guy, the kind of wide receiver one that people are kind of clamoring for. Um, but I think he's a guy that is going to 
be a huge help to this offense because it gives them another NFL receiver, you know, not a rookie, someone who knows what he's supposed to do. You know, he's he's going to be, or he's, he's 29 years old, you know, is a guy that, that understands his job and understands his role. And I think that he's going to be a big part of the offense going forward. But, you know, I don't know if I'd label him as the guy. That's kind of not really something I want to go further into, but um, he, he is going to help the offense. Um, so I think we got a couple of other kind of opinion questions here. Um, one from Michaela Tracy, and her question is, what is your take on Bruce Arians' retirement? So uh, this is interesting because we did talk a little bit about this last week, um, or just either last week or the week before, whenever it was that you know his announcement was, or his retirement announcement came in. So I think on one hand, you know, it's it's significant because, you know, he is now basically paved the way for, for Todd Bowles to get another chance as a head coach in the NFL. And it's significant because Bowles is a black head coach. And I think there's obviously not a whole lot of those coaches in the NFL. And I think it's important for representation and kind of the growth of the game. And I think that Bruce has done a tremendous job, you know, in that Buccaneers organization, hiring women, hiring coaches of color. And I think that is kind of the one thing to look at in terms of a positive that, okay, he has done a great job at kind of grooming people for success. And I think that is kind of the positive side of it. And the other side of it, you know, which I'll just be honest here, it's probably a lot of speculation, but I do believe that Tom Brady did have something to do with it. You know, maybe not to the point of saying to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, like, oh, if he's going to remain the coach, I'm going to retire, you know, and I'm not coming back unless he gets fired. And I think, unfortunately, you know, the first kind of positive things that I said is kind of getting overshadowed by, you know, the Brady stuff, which may or may not be true. You know, I think that there is definitely some truth to that speculation that Tom Brady kind of does have something to do with it. But on the other hand, this could be, you know, Arians' plan all along. I will just say, you know, the timing is a little interesting that, you know, he didn't announce that he was retiring after the season because it's like if that was the plan, if that was the plan for him, if that was the plan the organization had that he was going to retire, why would he go to the scouting combine? You know, why wouldn't they announce his retirement right after the season? You know, it just seems strange to me that, you know, Brady, quote unquote, retires, whatever you want to call it, you know, and then he comes back and then Bruce Arians retires. And it's just, it's a little strange, you know, I'll just say. But I think the thing for some people to remember is there's a lot of positive things that, that he has done in the Buccaneers organization. So, you know, I think it is his choice to retire, but it is a little it is a little interesting. There's some things there that don't necessarily add up. Um, and then kind of morphing into this other question that I got uh, from Caroline Canny, who is a good friend of mine. Uh, she's been a guest on Breath of Fresh Life, which is the other podcast that I do with a couple of my friends. Um, and so Caroline's question is, what are your personal feelings about Tom Brady? 
Um, so I think, Carol, there are a lot of things that, you know, go into this. Go into this because I think, obviously, I'm happy with or I'm very grateful for what Tom was able to do while he was here, while he was here in New England. And, you know, I think a lot of us owe a lot to him. You know, we owe a lot to our kind of fandom of the Patriots, our, you know, fandom of Boston sports, because if it wasn't for Brady and the Patriots winning Super Bowls, you know, I don't know if it, I don't know if this city would have the amount of, you know, love for its sports teams that it does. And I think that certainly goes into it in terms of, you know, what he did for this team, what he did for this franchise, being a huge part of six Super Bowls, um, nine trips, nine, ten trips to the Super Bowl. You know, it's almost like the Super Bowl is kind of the expectation around here. And I think a lot of success that he's had here, we owe a lot to him. Um, And I think... You know, in in recent years, my opinion maybe has changed a little bit. You know, I think for me, and I know that this is hard for some people, but I think for me, I try to separate his career with the Patriots and his career with the Bucks. And I just think, you know, I know that this probably is going to come off as very unpopular, but, you know, when he went to Tampa Bay, it kind of was like, whatever, you know, it's the end of a chapter and... Me as a fan, I try to move forward into, okay, this is what the Patriots are going to be from now on. Tom's not here, and he's just like any other player. And, you know, maybe that's unpopular. No, I didn't root for for the Buccaneers. I kind of don't have any interest to. Um, And so I think, you know, looking at him as as just another player, you know, it's hard for me to support some of the things that have gone on over the last few weeks, you know, saying that he's retired and then unretiring, you know, that's that's something that I have a huge problem with. And I think, sure, I appreciate all the things that he had has done for the Patriots and done for the city and done for, you know, me personally as a fan. But, you know, I just, I try not to kind of hold him up as this, you know, perfect picture of an athlete that he can do no wrong because, you know, there are certainly people that, that can do wrong or athletes that, that can do wrong. And I think that's also, it's kind of problematic when, you know, we try to look up to athletes as role models because, you know, they are just kind of like you and me. They just are supremely gifted, you know, at a sport. And so I think, you know, maybe it's harder for some people to separate Tom in terms of his time here and his time in Tampa Bay. But you know, again, they're just my personal feelings. And I know I've said this before that, you know, you don't have to take these feelings into account for you personally. You know, I might have a different viewpoint than you. And that's fine. You know, I think that, that everyone kind of has their own thoughts for, you know, Tom as a player. So uh, thanks, Carol. It was a great question. Um, so a couple of other kind of non-patriot questions here which I really appreciate I want to make it clear that, you know, if you had any questions, you could ask not just uh, New England sports related. Um, and so I had a couple of good questions uh, from my friend at Trent, Trenton Wright. You can follow him on Twitter at Trey Dubs, T-R-E-Y-D-U-B-S-S. Um, and his question, your two questions that he had, um, how is the NFC East going to turn out next season? 
Now, this is a great question because I think that, you know, realistically, I think there's a shot that three of these teams could win the division next year. And this is always a division that's kind of up for grabs usually. Um, you know, Dallas, we know what they can do offensively, but losing Amari Cooper, losing Lyle Collins, it kind of hurts. And I think they also lost Connor Williams to uh, the Dolphins as well. So, you know, this is an offensive line that maybe got worse. You know, Michael Gallup is a good receiver. Dalton Schultz, a good tight end. But, you know, I kind of, you kind of don't know what you're going to get out of Ezekiel Elliott. You know, I think Prescott's a good quarterback, but I think, as you saw late last year, he's prone to a lot of mistakes still. So, you know, they're a good team, and probably they'll make the playoffs. They'll probably be in contention uh, for a playoff spot. I expect the Eagles are going to be in contention for a playoff spot as well. You know, if that offense can get another weapon in the draft, they did just make a big trade in the draft with the Saints um, earlier in the week. So I'm curious to see how that how that kind of shakes out. Um, but obviously, you know what they can do offensively. They signed Hassan Riddick, which I think is a pretty good addition. You know, bringing back Fletcher Cox is huge uh, for that defensive line. Um, but I'm curious to see what they do in the draft. That is kind of going to depend on how I feel about them going into the season. Um, you know, Washington obviously made the big splash to trade for uh, Carson Wentz, and they still have you know, pieces on offense with McLaurin and Antonio Gibson. Um, but they did lose Brandon Scherf on the offensive line. And, you know, Landon Collins, pretty good safety, kind of a pretty good leader. Um, so they're interesting because could they win a division? I think it's possible with the, the weapons that they have. Um, but it's really going to come down to Carson Wentz. And if that defense can force turnovers. Um, and then the, kind of the wild card are the Giants. Um, you know, they're a team that I think have a lot of talent. They have the opportunity to add with two top 10 picks in the in the draft. Um, you know, can Barkley and Jones, can they stay healthy? Can they be a big part of the offense? Um, you know, they got better on the offensive line with a couple of additions, but it kind of just is going to come down to what they can do offensively. And if we see them you know, play the same way that we're kind of used to. I don't think they're really going to do anything. Um, but I think that this division is going to be interesting. It's always an interesting division to watch. You know, I would bet my, I would kind of hedge my bets on the Eagles or the Cowboys uh, to win the division. I also think both of those teams uh, make the playoffs. So I think either one could win the division or, you know, and or make the uh, wild card. But I think Washington could sneak in a wild card spot too you know, with three wild card spots. So very interesting division. Great question, Trent. And uh, he also had another question. Uh, who will be the best out of the current Alabama quarterbacks in the NFL when it's all said and done? So a lot, a lot to kind of unpack with that question. It's a great question, Trent. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I think that all three guys, when you look at Tua, Mac Jones, and Jalen Hurts, they're still in the early parts of their careers. Um, you know, I think Hertz and Tua have had two seasons under their belt. You know, Jalen Hurts played in his first year 
but wasn't exactly the starter. You know, I think last year was kind of the first year that he was a full-time starter. And I would probably say the same thing with Tua last year. Um, and then Mac Jones obviously had his rookie year. And I think did a lot better than some people would have expected. Um, so I think really this is going to come down to health. You know, all three of these guys, I think, or two of these guys, Jalen Hurts and Tua, have had some injury issues. And I think it kind of leads me to believe that I don't know if they're going to last very long in the NFL. You know, I think that obviously their running ability makes them really tremendous, really hard to stop, or Hurts especially. You know, I think Tua is a guy that can use his legs, but I think, you know, he he's hard. He's kind of hard to read. Because at times he's played great, but then at times he's played horrible. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of hard for me to tell whether he is legitimate or not. Hurts, I kind of tend to believe that he is, you know, going to be more legitimate. I think just because what he can do with his legs a little bit more. Um, I also kind of have more confidence in him as a passer than I do with Tua. You know, Mac obviously is not very athletic. You know, he's never going to be a running threat, but... You know, I think if he stays healthy, he stays up in the pocket and is protected by a good offensive line. It probably leads me to believe that he's going to have the most success. Now, I don't want to sound biased when I say it, but I think, you know, his style of play kind of leads me to believe that he'll be around for a long time. But I think Hertz also can stick around for a while, too. You know, too, is a guy who I think you kind of need to see more consistency from him. Um and I think, you know, Hertz has the ability to be an MVP type player like Lamar Jackson. I absolutely think so. Um, and I think Mac, you know, he continues to improve and develop the way that people think he can. I think he could win a league MVP one day. You know, Tua, I think it's going to be a lot for him to overcome. Um, but I think all three of them could be, you know, serviceable NFL quarterbacks. But I seem to think Hertz and Jones are going to be guys that are going to stick around for a really long time. Now, if you're thinking about both of those guys long-term, it's probably going to depend on injuries. And I think I just would say I would lean towards Mac Jones just because he doesn't really run very much. Um, you know, and Hertz does run. He seems to do a pretty good job of keeping himself safe. But I think running quarterbacks, it doesn't always, it doesn't always lead towards, you know, really long careers. I mean, certainly there are guys who are exceptions, Michael Vick, Randall Cunningham, and, you know, Lamar Jackson, it kind of seems at this point, but, you know, I don't know. I think that, you know, and maybe it's just me as kind of a pocket passer guy that I tend to think that those guys do well. Those guys tend to stick around for the longest time. So that kind of would be my answer that, you know, I think Mac Jones is going to be the best out of all these guys, but I think Jalen Hurts could also be very, very good as well. Um, so then we got a couple questions um, on our like Twitter hashtag, which I really appreciated. So uh, this next question comes from Elijah Riley. You can follow him at Elijah, E-L-I-J-A-H-R-55. Um, and his question is, how would you rank the quarterbacks in the AFC West? So obviously this is going to be a really fun division. You know, now that Russell Wilson is 
in the AFC West, you know, joining Herbert Carr and Patrick Mahomes. I just will say all, like all of these games are going to be like must-watch games, you know. This is definitely worth like getting NFL Red Zone or like getting one of those things that you can watch, you know, these games. You're going to want to watch all of these games because they're going to be amazing. You know, all four of these quarterbacks are tremendous. Um, But I think getting back to Elijah's question, you know, I think at the moment Patrick Mahomes is the number one for me. You know, I think when you think about what he's done in his career, especially recently, I think that he is a tremendous talent. Now, losing Tyreek Hill this year, you know, is a big loss. They do have a lot of other guys that I think can kind of fill that role. But to be clear, no one in the NFL is Tyreek Hill and no one in the NFL is as fast as him. So I'd be curious to see how he does this year. But I don't really think that it's going to he's going to slip. I don't really think you're going to notice much of a drop-off with him this year. Um, But I think Mahomes is definitely the guy that I would put number one. Now, number two is really hard because there might be a lot of recency bias here to, you know, put Herbert as the number two. But I think for me personally, when I look at ranking quarterbacks, I tend to look into kind of their, their career and kind of their overall, their career as an overall thing rather than kind of a what what have you done for me lately now. I think a lot of people believe in the latter, that they're like, okay, how good is the guy now? Um, I think Russell Wilson is, you know, not only a better overall quarterback when you consider his whole career, I do think he's a better quarterback right now. Um, But I think a lot of it's going to depend on what Denver looks like this season. Certainly... He has some weapons on the offensive side with Jerry Judy, you know, Cortland Sutton, uh, Javante Williams, Melvin Gordon. Um, a lot of it's going to depend on their offensive line, but I think I feel comfortable putting Russell Wilson second. You know, I think that that's not really crazy. You know, I put Herbert second or Herbert third, and then I put Derek Carr fourth. And by no means is that, you know, a negative thing on Derek Carr, because I think he's a good, solid quarterback. He's very accurate. Um, but I think there's a lot of pressure on him now to perform, you know, with Devontae Adams uh, now in the fold. So I think that probably is my rankings. But I think that, you know, all four guys are really good. And I think that, you know, it's tough putting Derek Carr fourth, but I think you know, when you're in a stack division with two quarterbacks that are, you know, kind of on that elite level, you know, it's kind of hard for me to put him in the top, in the top two, you know, him and Herbert, you know, I think Herbert's been really good since coming in as a rookie, but, you know, Carr, I think long-term has done a decent job, but I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, not a negative thing on Derek Carr. It's just kind of what I think. So, um, Moving on to our last question from uh, Corey Soryavong. Sorry, Corey, if I uh, butchered that. Uh, But you can follow Corey on Twitter at C-S-O-U-R-Y-A-V-O-N-G underscore 58. Um, So Corey's question is, what are your thoughts on the free agency moves this offseason in the NFL? 
Well, Corey, this is a great question because I think that there are a bunch of different ways that you could look at this. I think from my personal way of looking at it, it's, I don't know, you know, a lot of teams feeling like they're close and a lot of teams, I think taking a look at a team like Cincinnati who coming into the playoffs, I don't really think anyone thought they'd go to the Super Bowl. Um, And I think looking at what they could do offensively and how they performed made a lot of teams look at it like, okay, you know, if we're a piece or two away, let's get aggressive and let's bring some guys in. And so you saw some teams like Denver and like Vegas get very aggressive and be like, okay, we're not going to wait around. We're going to go out and get some big time players. So I think that that's how some teams approached it, that they saw how well Cincinnati did, or they also saw how well the Rams did. And, you know, the Rams just kind of said F it for their draft picks for the next five years and said, whatever, it's worth it if we can go win a Super Bowl. So maybe there are other teams that are thinking the same thing that, okay, you know, F those draft picks. We're just going to try to go win a Super Bowl, which, you know, I can't knock teams for trying to do that. Um, but I think long term, it doesn't always work out, you know, and I think that's kind of the other school of thought where, you know, you could be kind of of the thought of the Patriots where you're kind of willing to let other teams kind of go crazy and spend money and kind of throwing away their future just to kind of put them in a spot to win a Super Bowl. Now, it's not really sustainable over the long period of time, but I think Ultimately, I think a lot of teams saw that, okay, you put together a group like L.A., you can win a Super Bowl. If you you know, put together offensive weapons like Cincinnati, you can get really far. So I think that has a lot to do with it. But I also think like just spending money and making big moves in free agency, it doesn't always translate. No, and I think that's kind of something that I think people have to be aware of that, yeah, Vegas and Denver to, you know, bring back the examples are doing a lot of sexy things, you know, that the Chargers did too. But I think at the end of the day, you don't win championships in March and it's all about the team that you can put on the field in September and how you can play the course of the season. So there are some teams, I think like the Patriots that chose to stay quiet and chose to kind of not overvalue certain positions and certain guys. And they said, okay, you know, we're going to bank on our rookie quarterback to be a lot more improved in his second year. You know, we're going to bank on some of our young players to kind of come into the fold and kind of realize that they can be big-time role players. So, um, you know, Corey, it was a wild offseason. It really was. Um, and honestly, you know, it's not finished yet. You know, obviously it's only early April, so a lot can change between now um, and the draft and then, you know, training camp. So looking forward to the rest of the offseason, you know, the draft especially, I think that there are a lot of teams, including the Patriots, that could really help themselves with an excellent draft. So I think that it's going to be going to be an exciting time to be a football fan if it has not already. So um Again, I want to say thank you to everyone that uh, submitted questions uh, for the the mailbag. So we'll definitely do this again at some point. I'll definitely let you guys know about all that. Um, And so thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Thank you for submitting questions. And uh, 
we will talk to you guys on Monday next week. Um, as always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can follow our socials on Twitter and on Facebook. Have a good weekend, everyone.